Are you an adventurer looking to take your hunt to the next level? Then you're in the right place. Welcome to East Meets West Hunt with your host, Bo Martonic. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the East Meets West Hunt podcast presented by Spartan Forge. On today's episode, I am joined by legendary Western mountain buck hunter, Troy Pottinger. Troy hunts some of the wildest country for whitetails in the Rocky Mountains, but his tactics are applicable in many other areas as well. We discuss what elevations to find mountain bucks, food sources in the mountains, grizzly country, breaking down large areas, how to find the perfect tree to set up in, how slope affects buck bedding, logging cuts, weather fronts, summer scouting, and much more. There will be a part two of this because this episode went extremely long, full of great information, but I split it up into two episodes like I did with Jacob the other week, and that one will be out this week uh, a little bit later here as well. 100% born in the Appalachian Mountains and made in the USA, Timber Ninja Outdoors provides a range of mobile hunting options to accommodate diverse hunting preferences. Whether you prioritize comfort, lightweight design, or versatility, their two-panel and single-panel saddles collection has something for everyone. The Black Belt Nano is the lightest single-panel saddle available on the market, weighing in under a pound. The saddle is designed with the minimalist hunter in mind, focusing on lightweight functionality and breathability. One notable feature is the patent-pending magnetic stick clip system on the side, which allows for convenient transportation of sticks up the tree, as well as a built-in platform holder. The Nano Saddle can be folded up to the size of a Nalgene bottle, enabling easy portability. With a four-way stretch material on the back for a comfortable fit, as well as strategically placed padding for hip pinch relief. You can use code EASTMEETSWEST to get free shipping on any Timber Ninja order. If you try it out and don't like it, send it back within 30 days for a full refund. Learn more at TimberNinjaOutdoors.com and sign up for their email newsletter for exclusive discounts and product drops. When it comes to optics, I get the same question over and over again. What are the best all-around binoculars? Well, it's tough to find something that works in every condition great, but after using a pair of Maven B1.2 10x42s, I think I found them. They feature an 8x or a 10x option, superior low light performance, tack sharp edge to edge clarity, a generous depth of field, and a silky focus mechanism. All of Maven Optics have a lifetime no fault warranty and hail from the great state of Wyoming. I've been using Maven Optics since I bought my first pair in 2017, and I think you should test them out for yourself. Head over to mavenbuilt.com and use the code EASTMEETSWEST-GIFT for a free gift with any full-price optics order. For all of those that want a truck bed cover for work or play, Diamondback makes the top-of-the-line heavy-duty covers that help you do more with your truck. They're perfect for the truck-owning, avid sportsmen, outdoor enthusiasts, and weekend project warriors. I'm currently using the HD cover that can is capable of holding up to 1,600 pounds on the top. And then I have the Yakima overhaul HD bars on top, so I can put my rooftop tent on it. When I'm not using my rooftop tent and able to use the trifold design of the Diamondback, I have the Crossbin 8 in there to organize all of my stuff in the back of my truck bed. Diamondback is made right here in Phillipsburg, Pennsylvania. If you want to check them out, head over to diamondbackcovers.com. If you've wanted that hunting camp tradition that we talk about, that experience, but you don't have a hunting camp of your own, 
You're welcome to come stay at my hunting camp up here in the Pennsylvania wilds called the Elk Crossing Getaway in the PA wilds. So if you go over to Airbnb, you can check out our three-bedroom, one-and-a-half-bath house that's right in the heart of Pennsylvania elk country. It's only minutes away from a bunch of public land to be able to hunt, hiking trails, outdoor recreation, fishing, all of those things there. The house is completely fully stocked with everything that you need to be able to, to spend a week hunting deer, taking your family up to see the elk, anything like that. So if you head over to Airbnb and search Elk Cross and Getaway in the PA Wilds, you'll find my listing there and you can rent out my house. You send us a message, an inquiry that you're interested in it and mention that you heard it on the podcast here, then we'll get you 10% off of your first day. On this week's Mountain Buck Monday story of the week, coming to you here on Tuesday on the podcast, it comes from Mark F out of Pennsylvania. He said, for the last few years, I've been hunting the most remote sections of public land in my part of Pennsylvania. Most of my scouting is done by finding terrain features that will hold deer on topo maps and then boots on the ground after I identify these areas. After an archery season full of close calls and some missed opportunities, I finally got my buck with the rifle. It was the third time ever in this area and I found this honey hole thanks to studying topo maps. And uh, such an awesome buck. Looks like an old gnarly mountain buck that that Mark shot here in Pennsylvania. If you want to check that buck out, head over to the East Meets West Hunt Instagram or East Meets West Outdoors on Facebook and check it out. Beautiful deer. Congratulations, Mark. And it sounds like you've really got it figured out here in Pennsylvania hunting some of these mountain bucks. So thanks for sharing your story. If you want to share one with me, then uh, send that in to boateastmeetswesthunt.com. And I would love to be able to get to share that with you or share that with the, the listeners here and then everyone also on social media. So definitely send that in if you would. Uh, in other news, I got some more hats back in stock. So a lot of people have been taking advantage as I sent that email out and announced it on last week's podcast. I got a lot of new hats in. Uh, or I guess hats that have been out of stock are back in stock. And I just got two more in some of the roper hats that people are looking for the, the deer camp ropers. Those have been a very popular item. Finally got those back in after ordering them again months ago, but they're back and, and ready to go. I have one of the new t-shirts on. You can't see the back of it, but it's the new deer camp, uh, shirt, which will be coming out in a shirt and a hoodie and then a whole hat line and everything that's going to come with that but that'll be a little bit down the road here i'm just testing some of them out now to make sure that everything is uh how i like how i like it to be so um and then lastly if you're listening this the day that it goes out so tuesday july 19th then uh, at 7 p.m eastern time head over to my personal instagram page which is just at bow.martonic at 7 p.m eastern time we're going to do a spartan forge live event so this will be myself andy may and garrett prawl and we're going to be basically just having almost like a podcast but we're just going to be talking about uh some things whitetail hunting related and this is an opportunity for you to be able to have questions um it's presented by spartan forge people have questions on spartan forge how we're using it definitely 
um, you know, ask those questions or even anything else uh, generally hunting related. If you have something for one of us three that are on there, would love to be able to get to talk to you. We'll probably run for about an hour. Um, so definitely jump on that call and, uh, or I guess on that Instagram live and ask your questions and be able to, to take care of that. So looking forward to, to being able to do that here tonight, I guess, as this, as this comes out. So looking forward to that. So with that being said, let's, uh, let's go right into to part one here with Troy Pottinger. We're live. Troy Pottinger. Welcome back to the podcast, man. Hey, uh. Thanks for having me, Bo. It's good to it's good to be back. Good to get to talk to you again. It's been a while. I know. I, I actually looked back, and the last time that that you were on the podcast was like in October of 2020, and I couldn't believe that it was that long because you've been on the show, I think, three times now at least. And uh, yeah, I just I couldn't believe so much time has passed. But uh, it's good to good to get to talk to you again. Yeah, good to. I've been following all your stuff, and I know you've been busy. And- of course, I've been busy, so yeah, yeah. it's good to, get, good to get back together before the season starts here pretty quick because I think once the season gets rolling, it's, I don't know about you, but it's hard to find me. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah, same same here, you know, and it's it's funny, I've been uh, I've been getting out in the woods a little bit here, getting some cameras out and, and getting some cameras set up and some scrapes built and everything this, uh, I don't know, last couple of weeks here. And like first comes like elk season is going to come first for me. I have a Montana tag in my pocket. So I'm going to be going out there, but I can't, I can't stop thinking about the whitetails, man. I, <laughs> I struggle with that. You're, you're a anomaly, I guess, from being out West. So for anybody that you know, doesn't know, or hasn't listened to the other episodes with Troy, Troy's from Idaho and he's one of very few Western hunters that I know that are just fascinated by whitetails and chasing mountain bucks and out there in the Rocky mountains and does, does extremely well with it and puts in more work than just about anybody. So it's, uh, it's, it's pretty cool to, to see you be able to do what you do out there. No, thanks Bo. Yeah. I'd kind of been a life passion of mine and yeah, it's just it's crazy. It just every year, it just, I, I don't know. I'm more excited about it right now than I was when I was when I was 10 years old. So there you go. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> wow. Well, you you can hear it. You can hear it in your voice whenever we talk, either on the podcast or we're just on the phone together. Like it's you just ate up with it and just want to, you know, just continue to learn and do what we were talking before this. You're going into a new area this year, like it was actually today to go scouting. And you're just like, you know, can't wait to see what you turn up. Yeah, I think that just that whole idea of no wondering what's, you know, I live in huge country. Uh, I guess I should say I'm afforded the opportunity to get a hunt, probably some of the biggest uh, public land there is in the lower 48. So I've said it before, I'll never cover all the ground that I have access to out here between eastern Washington, northern Idaho, western Montana for whitetails. I'll never cover it all. So it's always a blast just getting into brand new drainages, new country and picking it apart, you know, just starting with, I always start with maps, but my favorite parts, the boots on the ground where I'm laying it out and trying to uh, get a big picture idea of what all the whitetails are doing in there and, and get an inventory on what's in there. Yeah, no, that definitely. And in the country, like when you're saying big country, like, it's it's funny because people that listen to this podcast and they they think of 
you know, where I hunt and, and the areas in the Appalachian mountains is big country. And that is compared to farm country, but then you get out to where you're at and that's real big country. That's a, that's a whole nother world right there. Yeah. And you, you know, Bo, you've been out here, you've elk hunted it. Uh, you said you're going to be in Montana this fall. You're probably not that far from me. I mean, I, I don't know where exactly you're going to be in Montana, but yeah, you get out there and elk hunt it. I'm hunting whitetails literally in the same kind of country that you're hunting elk in that's that's so crazy to me that they they live in some of those places and and actually when i was in montana this spring bear hunting i ran into someone who listens to the podcast here and he was uh he was out uh bear hunting and turkey hunting in the in the mountains there and he uh he picked up a big shed a nice a nice shed about 145 inch white tail if he had both sides on it nice just typical five frame and i was just like man that's crazy that they live in some of these these areas that's for sure yeah and i think i think over the you know my last four decades um i'm in my early 50s and i the last four decades i've actually probably had better luck with my most mature oldest uh hermit like bucks up in that elk range in that I'd say the middle to the lower elk elevations, just because I think that just because of pressure and population expansion out here, more people hitting the woods. I just think whitetails will always adapt and evolve and move into areas that, especially those older bucks that give them that really truly give them more quiet solace, just peacefulness, you know, for them to live out most of their days anyway. Um, so yeah, I've, I've actually moved up in elevation over the years to where now my standard elevation is probably a thousand feet higher than it used to be 15, 20 years ago. Really? Yeah. It's pretty so, interesting how I've just watched it, you know, felt that they're just, I have experienced them moving up and they're getting in, they're just hanging out right where the muleys are now. Yeah. I get a lot of mule deer on my cameras now where I'm hunting these, these, where I'm singling out and hunting these older deer. Really? And then, so like in those, how do you know how high, I mean, is it just from scouting? You can tell how high the white tails are or like, how do you know, like when you're looking at a piece of like, you know, Western mountain country like that, like how do you kind of like gear in on a certain elevation or certain type of area there? You know, it always starts bow with habitat. Um, you and I both know they have to eat and they have to, they need good, they really need good security, wind advantage, and cover because of the predators. But they have to eat well, and they have to eat well year-round. So I I like to find those elevations that also produce excellent native vegetation for the for the whiteys just to feed on and hide out in. And and a lot of a lot of it coincides with big security cover timber stands, you know, massive timber stands. Yeah. And what, what, I, I know we talked about this a little though, one of the last times we talked, but what, what are some of those like things that they're feeding on out there? Like, what are some of those things that you are keying in on that they, they tend to feed, feed on? The uh, early season, believe it or not, I'd, I'd say that one of the number one draws, and when you say they, uh, the older bucks, I don't know if they're, I don't know if they're more human-like than we realized, <laughs> but they <laughs> seem to really like, no, they really do seem to like to pound the carbs. 
a lot in the mountains in the high country. So some of my best whitetails I find where there's big huckleberry patches close in the early season and high elevation, I believe, because of how hot it is. And there's always water in the north. So when you factor in real high heat out here, I think, Bo, you've been out here in September before, right? Yeah, yeah. It can be really hot in September. All right. So we're we're back again here. Sorry, there was a little bit. You might hear a little bit of a change in the audio for anybody that's listening. I uh, I didn't have my recorder plugged in, and uh, the batteries died, and I lost the first part on there. But I do have the audio from the Zoom call, so it might sound a little bit worse for for my part of the recording. But uh, I'll link it together and do my best of editing it here. So sorry about that, Troy. But uh, at least we didn't miss that. You were you were talking a little bit about some of these older bucks and feeding with the the huckleberries and water on those north facing slopes if you wanted to kind of continue your thoughts there yeah and then out here bo uh i don't know if you've ever been in northern idaho up in the panhand but we get no we we probably get i mean i'd have to look the numbers up but i'll bet we get five times the rain that most of idaho gets so it's it's very, very wet up here. I mean, our spring was just insane the last three months, how much rain we get. So all that to say, um, there's a, there's a exorbitant amount of just fresh green grass everywhere in the mountains. And I mean, little shoots of grass that just pop up everywhere. We have real good soil. Uh, I believe we have really good soil for mountain soils. I was, I was out on a uh, construction job the other day looking at a job. I'm going to do a bulldozing job. And uh, I was up at 3,000 feet. A guy bought five acres, actually my cousin, and he's having me do some road work. But I was looking at the cut bank and a foot and a half to two feet of, of black soil before you get down to the clay and the shale. So uh, this country grows really good native feed from the grasses, all the brush, uh, the ceanosis, the red stem ceanosis out here. You find red stem ceanosis patches, you'll find elk, whitetails, moose, everything. So between that, between that and the, uh, I literally consider it like an ice cream to deer, the, the huckleberry patches, all the grasses, uh, just the native grasses, then and then the browse. The native browse in this country and the amount of different brushes, boas, it's it's literally ridiculous. To It's hard to explain, but it's just a wall of impenetrable brush in a lot of places for miles. Yeah. And it's all it's all good browse that that our whitetails can live in, eat, eat on and really not even leave a bed all day long if they're, you know, and then maybe slip over to a little draw with water in it and we have water everywhere so much water in this country it's ridiculous like you're not going to find a a single water source like you would in southern idaho that's that's very uh island like up here there's just water in every drainage and this time of the year any draw any any type of canyon any type of ridge system with draws in it has water in it so they really have everything they need up up into the higher elevations. Yeah, no, that's, that's interesting. And, and, uh, it, what you're talking about, I mean, that 
I'd, I imagine they had to have great food sources for, you know, the, some of the size of the deer that you're able to get, obviously genetics play some role in it, but you don't, they don't get that big and that healthy without, without having good food. So that you know, makes it, sense. It's, it, that's, a, you know, I was talking to Justin Hollingsworth last night. I don't know if you know, Justin from Lone Wolf Custom Gear. And he's my buddy out in Ohio. And, um, I'm actually looking at purchasing a piece of property in one of my favorite areas, uh, um, actually made an offer on it. So we'll see. Anyway, I was talking to Justin and you're, you know, you're talking about that feed. I sent Justin just randomly said, these bucks are all within 50 miles of this location. Well, I sent him like a picture of six different bucks within 50 miles of this location that I'm looking at. And, uh, it, it kind of blew me away too. just, just the um, just the size of the whitetails in the mountains out here that aren't eating ag, that are not living on agriculture, like kind of set me back when I sent those pictures to Justin because Justin sends me back a message. He's like, "Geez, dude, you know that's yeah. ridiculous. That's ridiculous for uh, for public land slash no ag, you know." Anyway, but yeah, to speak to your point, hundred percent. There's really impressive native feed out here for the whitetails in the mountains. Yeah, no, that, uh, that's, that's, uh, it's incredible because in the fact that they don't have that ag to be able to go to, I mean, like, I I feel like even like you get to places like Ohio and even some of the big woods areas, there's always ag within a certain distance. You know, if they're not, if there's not a big mass crop, they can kind of migrate down and get to some of those areas. Whereas, you know, where you're at, it's, I mean, they're, they're living in the mountains and that's what they're, they're doing. They're feeding off that browse and you don't have oak trees or anything to my knowledge that you're having any of that mast crop. It's, it's, it's their browse deer. Yeah. They're browsers and grass eaters. And yeah, it's, it's, there's zero mass crop at all in the mountains. You know, it's just straight browse. So yeah. And then they still pack on that size. Now, a lot of my deer bow, by January do have to migrate and then they end up down in the valleys and they get to eat on some good food sources, including some ag. And when I say migrate, some of the deer are moving 12, 15 miles to get down to the river bottoms to where they can survive the winter. So they do get a shot of that for say two to three months, I would say. Mm -hmm. And then about it. So from about January to April, they're really pushed down low in elevation a lot of times they end up in some agriculture country. So that probably doesn't hurt either when they're, when they're starting to re when they're starting to grow everything, mm-hmm. it probably doesn't hurt that they get to those minerals. They get to that soil that they get to that good food too. And then they move back up into the mountains for the, for the summer and the fall and the early winter. Yeah. And they, and they, and they, I guess at that point too, they can help recoup their bodies down there, you know, after the beginning of the winter and the rut and all those different things, they can go down there and get some good, get some good food and everything. But it, it's kind of crazy to hear that they migrate like, you know, that far, uh, you know, we might see bucks here in Pennsylvania that'll go six, seven miles at most, but you're not, you're, you're typically not seeing them go, you know, a, a dozen miles or so to, to, to move. And cause we don't have the elevation that they really need to, you know, to, to, to get away from things. They might go to a better food source in the, in those heavy winter months. But, and do you, uh, so one of the things that was, I'm curious about, and I think, I think I kind of know the answer to it, but when you look at the mountains, 
there's not whitetails in all of the mountains in the Rockies. They seem to be in some particular locations. Is it because that country is so thick that it has all that browse? Whereas you look at like a lot of other traditional elk country that it uh, is more open underneath that timber. Is that, do you kind of contribute that to where you find them? Yeah. You know, the, the whitetails, I always find them where, you know, I always said it to my son, my whole life, when you get into the thick country where the browse is there and where the security covers there, that's where you start running into the whitetails up to, up to 6,000 feet. Now, is there a lot of whitetails at that elevation at six? No, but up to 6,000 feet, that's pretty much the cutoff line that I have found, but it's, it's 100% going back to what you asked me earlier, habitat, that habitat has to be there. And then the whitetails will move into it. If the habitat, meaning the vegetation security cover, the wind advantage from predators, it all plays into one. When they get into those ridges and up on those mountainsides, you know, those thermals and wind and wind or those thermals and prevailing wind directions keep them alive throughout the year. And they're always, I mean, lions and pre, lions and wolves on their tail all the time. Mountain lions are the worst, followed by closely followed by wolves if you have wolves in a drainage. So yeah, they're 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 bouncing too. They're bouncing though. They're not. They don't just sit in one spot or they're sitting duck. They have to move around, and we often or I often have to really lay out a huge area to pick up where the target bucks I'm after will move to if they get bumped by big predator situations. Okay, so you have the area kind of laid out as like backup things. You start picking up some wolves on your cameras, something like that, and the bucks aren't showing yeah. up. It's like, all right, let me go check this area that I would scouted out that I think maybe they could be moving to. And that's that's a whole different world being able to have that. Do you and do you deal with grizzlies much? I do, uh, Bo, in some of my areas. Yes, um, the spot I'm going in today is heavy grizzly country, so that's another factor that. For a person that's never hunted in grizzly country, and maybe you have bow when you're elk hunting, I'm not sure. But a that bit. is a whole that's a whole different uh, piece of the equation of what we're doing that you really got to factor in. You know, when you're walking in at I don't know an hour before daylight and wanting to get to a stand for a morning sit, and maybe you're trying to catch a big buck ascending back up the mountain towards his bed, and you're out in the middle of nowhere of the mountains, and you're walking in in the dark for an hour with a headlamp to get to your stand and you're walking in on grizzly in grizzly country, I'm telling you, it's, it's different. It's, it'll make the hair on the back of your neck stand up when, when a bear crosses in front of you or you hear something rustling in the brush uh, on the way to those tree stands and, and coming out in the dark. And when you kill something and you got blood all over and, you know, I, I bone everything out. I haven't packed bones out for, I haven't packed bones out of the backcountry for two, probably two decades. Yeah. So I'm always boning everything out and getting it in my pack. And a big whitetail buck usually takes two trips for me. You know, and a lot of times I'm down in elevation from where I parked. I'm way down in on big ridges because most people, most people don't want to pack stuff uphill. So I kind of play that game, but all that to say, yeah, and that grit in the grizzly country, you completely prepare differently. I always have a sidearm. Pack the bear spray too. 
I mean, I'm just always ready because they don't give you much time. If you, you walk up on a sow and cubs and I've walked up on sows and cubs before, and they don't take kindly to you in this country because they, they fear nothing. They've never been hunted. So they just do what they want and they do not fear humans. Yeah. Well, yeah, and they're because they're not able to be hunted. So it's like, yeah. why did they have nothing to be feared of as far as from a human perspective? And I, I can't, like, so I've, I've dabbled in some grizzly country. I can't say that I've spent a ton of time in there, but it's a different level of awareness walking in the dark. Um, like, to, especially, you know, you're going into a whitetail stand and you're going in there, you know, by yourself and you're going in the dark with a headlamp. You know, most of the time when I'm elk hunting, I'm always with somebody, which adds a little bit of that security to you. But I, I can, I, I bet that there's, there's not too many other things that you can do in life that gives you better awareness <laughs> than doing that. No, you want to talk about having your head on a swivel and all of your senses are in tune with what's going on around you. Absolutely. Like you got to have your, I'll just say, you got to have your shit wired tight when you hunt grizzly country. And if you don't, you might be flirting with disaster when it comes to grizzlies because, I mean, you got to be, you just got to have your, your head on straight, paying attention. And, and thank God, I've, I mean, knock on wood, because I'm going into grizzly country today, but thank God that I've never had a real bad incident at all. Uh, probably the most nerve wracking thing I've ever done is, is rode up on one on my e-bike and met it right in the middle of a logging road in the spring, like came around the corner and there it was. And it stood up on its hind legs. That's probably oh. the closest. Yeah. And I was probably 25 feet from it. <laughs> oh my, I could not imagine that you come around a bend and you see that thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You're, I'm on my e-bike, which the e-bike makes no noise. So it didn't hear me coming. Yeah. I was not expecting it in this area. Um, yeah. And, and I same with black bears too. And, for whatever reason, and maybe it's just a psychological thing. Now nah, it is. It's partly that, but black bears run from us. They get hunted by hounds out here. They get yeah. hunted hard. Grizzlies just, when you get into grizzly country, they just look at you different. I mean, they just flat out do whatever the hell they want. They're like, they're kind of like a moose out here that doesn't get hunted very hard. You know, we have very few draws on the moose. Moose just kind of walk through and do what they want to. Yeah. Yeah, that's uh, that's interesting, and and so okay, so obviously you know with with these areas with uh, all the predators and stuff that you have, and and that's adding a whole nother level of complexity to it. But I'm curious to like, okay, so let's just talk a scenario base. Like today, you're going into new country. What what's your game plan look like? What are you what are you going in and doing here in the summer as you're going in to scout one of these areas? Have you ever wanted to have Levi Morgan, Andy May, Johnny Stewart, and others? available at all times well you can with cyber scout from spartan forge cyber scout is like the chat gpt for outdoors men and women you can ask it any questions related to bow building scouting hunting survival and a whole lot more i think you'll be impressed with how it responds cyber scout is currently out now for a select group of early beta testers and will be available to the rest of you really soon the entire app is a complete tool for planning your hunt with incredible aerial imagery mapping, journaling, deer prediction, and some of the most accurate and detailed weather data. Use the code EASTMEETSWEST to save 20%, and if you're still on the fence, give the 14-day free trial a chance at SpartanForge.ai. 
CVA has been America's number one selling muzzleloader brand for over a decade. Hunting with a muzzleloader opens up a ton of hunting opportunities across the U.S., and I've been using the Acura series. But they don't only make badass muzzleloaders. Their line of centerfire rifles are great quality and not terrible on the wallet. The Cascade short barrel is ideal for tight quarters, deer drives, and quick shots in the big woods. You can check out their line of muzzleloaders, rifles, and accessories for every season and every range at bpioutdoors.com slash CVA. If you use the code EASTMEETSWEST10, you'll get 10% off of all CVA products, which includes rifles, muzzleloaders, and accessories. So about probably two and a half, three months ago, Bo, I started uh, based on a shed antler fine. I think you and I talked about it before the uh, started this, before we started the podcast. Based on a tremendous shed antler find, it wasn't mine, but um, the person that found it is a bear hunter and does not care a whole lot about whiteys. Basically, um, a few months ago, sat down on the maps of the area, laid it all out, looked at all the topography, broke it all down. I broke down about a 10-mile square area on maps, and I looked at all the topography, uh, obviously pinpointed some excellent elevations and topographical features that I like when it comes to whitetails. And then the key is always overlaying it with that Google Earth. Google Earth is probably the best because you can zoom in, look at the habitat, tilt it, turn it, really look at how the land lays. And then you look at all your access points where everybody else can hunt. And then based on where that shed antler was sitting, and we literally got to see exactly where the shed was was laying, where it got picked up. We just fanned out from there, and it's a buddy of mine and I are doing this. We fanned out from there, and we picked, we got one, two, three, four drainages, different drainages, watersheds, uh, with rib, big ridge, long ridges in between. And we're basically, what we're doing, Bo, is – laying out a big trap line of cameras through all these drainages at two different levels of elevations that I really like and that he likes. And then we're just going to let the cameras tell us what's going on in there. And of course, most people know me know that I like to hunt scrapes. So at every camera, we're building a big scrape or we're finding, I mean, the first, the very first time we went in on the second spot that we had picked on a map, it had a giant scrape right where we expected it. So when we find what should be there, we overmark it. If we don't find the type of scrape we want, where we want to lay a camera out based on habitat, terrain, and all the breakdown, then we build one. And then we're throwing cameras on those scrapes for inventory right now. And we're literally going to get to go check some cameras today. And we're going to put in probably three or four new uh, synthetic scrapes. Okay. And what, um, and, and I know, I know we've talked about this before too, but I, I do want to ask again, like if you're, if you're going to build a scrape in an area, what, what are you looking for out there as far as like, all right, this is a place that, that I want to build, build a big scrape. Is that something that you find like correlations between, or is it something that you kind of just, uh, you, you come across and you just recognize it? If I want to build one, if I want to build a mock, I'm always, is that what you're asking, Bo, if I want to build one? Yeah. I always have to have, when I get there, when I when I get to the spot, and this is, I'm glad you brought this up. 
I did a boot camp on Saturday, whitetail boot camp. And I always start the boot camp off with all the intel, all the in-classroom uh, layout of the basically the breakdown of how you find a mountain buck. And I teach people how to find them first based on maps and all that. But the key to the boot camp is when I take the guys to the woods for the second half of the day. And you're asking me this question will totally be answered here by how this works. I told, you know, I talk to guys all the time. I say, when you get to a spot that you really like, and when you visual, when you visually check it out and you see what you need to see, you see the habitat, you see the security cover. I said, you got to spend at least an hour there testing the wind. And I always get the, you know, being a teacher for 28 years, I pick up on body, you know, body language big time. So I always get when I'm in the classroom setting talking about it, it's kind of like being in school. Until you actually have kids go out and, and do the hands-on experience and feel it, sense it, and really get a feel for it, people roll their eyes a little bit, you know, and they, they, yeah. they, they're they like, what the hell? So you take these guys out after you teach all the intel, and then you go practice it, and you put it to practice. Well, I took these guys out the other day onto this cool little ridge, a really good spot actually. And close enough to my home and, and a place where we've killed some tremendous deer in the past. And I took them in on kind of the, the two thirds of the way up this mountain. And I took them in on this Ridge and I got to a spot and I expected a scrape to be there. And I hadn't been in there in about 10 years. I've been, I've been hunting different areas and much a little higher above it, but I hadn't been to the specific spot in about 10 years. And when I walked in there, sure enough, just like it showed on the maps, there should have been a scrape in there because of the edge, the habitat edge that was in there, the bench that was in there, there was a little scrape. And all the guys started kind of getting excited. And then I said, okay, now just stand here and fill the thermals and fill the wind. Well, guess what the wind and the thermals did at that location? Swirled, kicked all over. And I said, guys, here's what happens to whitetail hunters all the time. You get in, you get excited, you see a beautiful location, you see a beautiful stand of trees, heavy, heavy security cover right up against a 40 or 50 year old clear cut that's been re that's been regrown. So it's all reprod. So it's just thick trails everywhere, even in the grass. And the grass is a foot and a half tall. And you can see where deer are walking through here. And there's this little there's an old there's a scrape there that they used last week. But the wind's terrible. The thermal's horrible. So I said, all right, let's move up to this next level where the crest of this bench will be on top of it and we'll get a more consistent wind. So we moved 100 yards. Guess what was up at 100 yards above that? Another Incredible, big scrape. Huge community scrape. We stood there. I made, I made them stand there, feel the wind, uh, pick out a kill tree that would work for entrance and exit. I laid it all out for them but I made them base it on the thermals and the wind just a hundred yards away, Bo made all the difference. Guess what the wind did for us up on that crest. More consistent. Perfect. Yeah. It worked. It worked incredibly consistent with the thermal and the prevailing and the prevailing that is in there is about a 75% huntable stand versus if we would have set up down on the other great looking spot, a hundred yards down the ridge you'd be in a mess. You'd literally educate every deer in there. So just breaking that down for those guys and really teaching them to be patient and break the wind down 
and take the time to break the wind down. Then I made them walk over. I, ha- I had them not made. I asked them, I said, now, now what we got to do guys is anytime you set up, in my opinion, why waste your time if you can't hunt it? So if I'm going to put a camera on this existing community scrape, that's there, I'm going to make sure there is a hangable set area to hunt and an entrance and exit. So I had them circle all the way around all of that. We picked out a tree that made the most sense, had the best cover, uh, 22 yards off the scrape. And we had an unbelievable draw behind it and an entrance and exit from the east, which everybody knows out west, you get all south and west winds mostly. And we were able to carve out, and those guys got to feel it, see it, sense it. They were able to carve out what a true, not fully bulletproof, but very bulletproof stand set would be over that scrape. And it, it, I mean, I had so much feedback from the guys are just like, I never ever thought about breaking it down this way, Troy, and taking the time to break it down because they all would have just hunted down at that first one. And they would have hung, they would have hung a set there and been excited about the wagon wheel trail down there, but it's the wrong spot and it's only a hundred yards away. So by the time we left, Bo, we'd been in there two hours, two and a half hours, actually, in a 100-yard, 150-yard circle, breaking it all down. We even went and found our entrance and exit that, that would work perfect where we could park a half a mile away on the east side of the mountain and come in and really never cross many deer. Anyway. So to answer your question, Bo, I kind of got off on a tangent there, but no, that was perfect. Just taking that time to decipher the wind and the thermals is, is key to being a consistent killer. In my opinion, in the mountains, obviously the deer have to be there too. Yeah. You know, oh, so yeah. Like, yeah. We hung a camera on it and it'll have a, I purposely went in there and hung a camera because I have a, a really nice whitetail on that mountain that made it to five years old this year. And I think I can pick him up at this location now. So 10 years later, after not hunting that spot, I finally have a buck in there that I really like. I really like it for my son, Jess, my oldest boy, actually, my bass fisherman that doesn't get a lot of time to hunt. I'm actually setting it up for him to kill that deer there. And, and, you know, and uh, what, one of the things that you had, said there i think it's super important is the fact that you when you found that sign you took all that time to break down all the scenarios and i feel like many people when they go and they they go scouting you know they find this good sign they mark it and they move on and it's like you know that's that's i was talking to my cousin mason about the other day he's like he's like you know when i find a spot that i like he's like it takes me a couple hours to look at all the scenarios what's the right tree how am i going to set up in this how am i going to access it and thinking of all those things because you don't want to be thinking about that right at the time, you know, right at the time that you're trying to hunt. And then, and, and, you know, you can always say you're going to come back later and you never do. So, or, or it, you rarely do, I guess. So it's important. Like when you find that stuff, just to, to spend that time and checking out the, the wind and thermals and, and being able to figure out how that's going to interact because we, we get a lot of those situations here where, you get like a hub spot or like a bowl, basically it comes down and where all these drainages kind of run into one spot. There's always a big ass community scrape there, but it's very situational whether you can hunt it. If it's too steep coming in, it's just constantly swirling those winds and uh, it's, it's not really huntable. Whereas, 
you know, if, if you were just to look at that sign, it'd be like, yeah, this is where I should be at, you know, but if, but until you kind of sit there and you throw some milkweed out or even just feeling it, a lot of times you can be able to determine that this probably isn't a huntable spot, but maybe if you, you work, you know, in one direction or the other and kind of cover those little other, you know, tiny points or ridges that come that lead into it, you can find a spot that's huntable and you're still technically right. hunting that scrape, but not at that scrape. Right. <laughs> you right. know, do you and, find and that, that too with like some of those hub areas? Do you find scrapes yeah, in that, those areas? Bo, that's exactly what we ran into is, is a, a scrape and a scrape about a hundred yards apart. But the second one was way more conducive for us to kill at. Mm-hmm. And the first one looked incredible when you saw the wagon wheel trails. But again, you know, all the guys that I was with got excited on the first one and they thought it was incredible. And there was actually, the trails were actually more defined down there, but the wind is just a killer and the thermal's a killer with the wind there. But yes, bump up. Basically, what we're both saying here is when you're out there in the mountains, you're trying to kill a big whitetail. Why would you not put yourself in the most opportunistic place to kill him when you can pull it? It's easy to pull a buck a hundred yards. Yeah, big whitetail, a big scrape. It's easy to pull him a hundred yards. Uh, if you're trapping whitetails uh, like I do with scrapes, they're going to check both. They're not just going to check one. And you know that's all the difference sometimes for guys that struggle is just not taking the time to be an extremist with how the wind works for the deer in that area. And the whitetails that I hunt have to have good wind or they're, they're wolf shit. If they're not, that's just the way it is. A lion's going to kill them. So they live by the wind out here. So that's the game I play is the, the wind has to be great for them. And I'm able to slide in on the edge of it and back door come in from the back door, so to speak, and not cross them hardly at all. Now, do all whitetails follow a perfect script? Does does a whitetail walk down my entrance and exit trail every now and then? Sure, but not very often. Yeah. But it's because I put a lot of and it's because I'm putting a lot of time and thought into the big picture of how they use that area. You know, and there's so many there's so many from doing this podcast and talking to you know numerous really good whitetail hunters, the best of the best pay attention to access so just like to a just incredible amount of detail like yourself uh nathan killen whenever i talk to him and others that just like they look at the access just as much as they're looking at that good sign and that scrape and everything as far as being able to get in there and i know like last year my my opening day pennsylvania buck i was like that was that was the biggest thing i could have accessed that spot in probably a three-quarter of a mile walk but if i knew that if i were able to use this this crick system and walk that up the the drainage essentially and be on the opposite side and then cross over and then i actually walked like right on the bank because i didn't want to cross these trails that were coming down this drainage to get up into my tree like those little details matter because if i would have walked up that trail coming in you know he might have got a whiff of that or did and and not even had a shot opportunity and i think that's that's and as I was talking to Jacob on the podcast, when I was recording one with him yesterday, we were talking about it's really difficult uh, for most people, including myself at times, as the season goes on to start getting a little bit lazy with those things. And it's con- you have to be kind of constant in your head. And like my, my what I tell myself is like, 
just every time it's like, you just got to do this one time, right. And, and it'll work out, but you just keep telling yourself every time it doesn't always happen that day. But with that mentality, it's, it, uh, you can be more disciplined, I guess, with it. Yeah. And you know, one thing I was teaching the guys at the camp too, just to add to that is you even have to visualize in your mind, your access trail to that stand and purposely put your footsteps to your stand to get into it so that you can turn around in your tree stand. If you do have a buck that you want to kill, come in behind you before they cross your trail, you can kill them either side of it. You know, and I was showing those guys that and I made them all walk it with me. And every guy, there was 12, I keep my boot camps at about 12 guys. So it doesn't get too big. Yep. So that it's, I have a lot of one-on-one time. Um, but I had every guy walk through the tall grass and sh- I showed them, this is how you need to walk into the stand and why. And then when we got to the tree, that was by far the best tree to kill out of the tree was the ugliest tree there, <laughs> but it was the best tree to kill out of Bo. And that's where I got to talk to him about equipment and versatile, you know, equipment that can get you in an ugly tree and still keep you straight and allow you to hunt that spot more than one time. Um, but walking those guys in and explaining to them, you always have to be able to shoot your back trail just in case before a buck crosses it. That made a lot of sense to him too. Once I got to show it to him and they had to walk it with me and they were looking up at the kill tree the whole time. And then it made all the sense in the world, the, the path that we, that I purposely deliberately walked in on that I picked out of my head based on what the wind was doing, my entrance and exit, how to climb into that tree, still kill everything on both sides of me behind me before it crossed me. Yeah, that, no, that's, that's, that's a really important little detail there. And, uh, but before I forget, I, I, next year, I want to come out to one of your camps. Cause I think in the next year or so I want to go do, I want to go do one of those hunts, um, a Western whitetail mountain hunt. I've been talking to you about it for a few years now, but, uh, I, it's, it's coming to that time now where I need to, I need to make that happen because it just seems seems to be like it, it would be a blast and there'd be no, there's no, there's no better teaching element. I mean, you can listen to podcasts, you can do that, but that in-person part of like you showing those people in the field, like that's, that'll stick in their mind forever. You know, it's one thing right. to hear something, but when you show them something, you know, and that's the same thing when I did my scouting camp this year, that was like yeah. every, the feedback I got was like, man, this is like, this either confirmed what, you know, I thought you know, by going right. out and looking or like, wow, okay, this is the little details you look at here and explain like going up. And we were on a piece of uh private big woods ground. So the sign was more uh prevalent, I guess. So it was easy to get like really excited. I'm like, okay, yeah, we found this sign, but let's go, let's go a little bit further and let's look at this and how this lays out and, you know, dropping the milkweed and seeing how that worked. And it's, it having that in person, it, it's, you're able to, to see that a little bit better. Yeah. I had, a to add to what you're saying, I agree with you hundred percent. The kinesthetic side of learning is you, you think about when we, when we were all in school, that whole kinesthetic side of learning is where it's at. When, when you walk people through it and they get a, they get a sense it with all their senses, it just sticks with them. And it's interesting. I had Josh LaVar down here from Alberta, Canada. He came to my boot camp and Josh killed the biggest buck of his life last year 
basically, he says it, uh, using a lot of my tactics and techniques with scrapes, but also paying attention to detail. And he was down here and Josh was great. He's a really sharp guy. I, I mean, I just picked up on it right away how sharp he is. And he, I had him, I, you know, I've known Josh enough. To, I said, you know, bring your windicator with you, bring your milkweed with you. So it was kind of cool while I was teaching, Josh was kind of my helper. I, I just kind of threw him into it with me and he loved it because, <laughs> He was, he was popping the milkweed for me and showing everybody as I spoke. So he just like jumped right in and, you know, and then he was using that as a visual for these guys. And they were all just blown away at more than anything, how overlooked the wind is. And, and we're talking wind and thermals mixing, yep. wind and thermals mixing and showing those guys where you can find some consistency in the mountain that really helped. And I got a ton of feedback this time from the majority of the participants at the boot camp. They were just like showing us where we could see the difference in terrain that actually makes a difference with the wind. That was crucial to them. And I kept hearing guys saying, man, I'm doing this all wrong. Or, yeah, I'm really close on this. I just need to be more selective. You know, I heard all these different comments from the guys. And the best part is, is, I get a million questions out there, which when guys are asking questions, they're learning, you know? Yeah. So now it was, it was really cool. And, and most importantly, every one of those guys would be a little better whitetail hunter if they, if they decide to adhere to those disciplines. Yeah, no. And, and, and another point that you had brought up too, is like in anybody that's listened to you in any sort of the, uh, any sort of fashion understands how you know you are with scrapes and and when you say trapping whitetails you're talking about your scrape regimen and being able to to pull them like say for example like that spot you were looking at i don't know the exact scenario but you're saying that there's a real good one down below one up high and i'm assuming you know with with the way that you're able to freshen up that scrape and and doctor it up that you can make that like the primary spot to be able to do that and essentially you know trap those whitetails is that correct yeah yeah that's a primary daylight i think it was that that spot that specific spot it always starts with wind and thermals works there the the kill tree setup was incredible because it had multiple trees kind of behind it for cover um, a guy wouldn't have to hunt that high there with the way the wind was working. A guy could hunt high if he wants to get out of the crook of the – the ugly tree was crooked, but it's the right tree to kill out of. So I talked to the guys all about that, but the access was incredible, and the habitat around a bow um, guaranteed that the bucks would bed kind of at a 45 up above and work their way down to that spot, that kill tree, and it would be a daylight. That's the key. Uh, sign is cool, but until you determine whether or not the sign that you're seeing is daylight frequency, the, the frequency of the daylight attendees is high, then you're kind of wasting your time too. Once you confirm all of that and you, when you can see that a mature target buck that you're after will use it in the daylight, that tells you everything when it's a five or a six-year-old buck or older, because that tells you the hunter that he is so comfortable there versus a lot of other places on the mountain. And that's where you got to hone in on. It's easy to find beautiful sign, beautiful sign, but you got to make sure it's daylight frequency sign. 
Yeah, and and an, another another point about like when you're talking about like finding those areas that they'll go in, in daylight and them betting. You said maybe this you were assuming these bucks would be betting at a 45 up a little bit above. Do you do you find that like okay is that going to be a better spot in the morning all day that they might come out and and check that the evening what and and then why like why like if you were looking at that and assuming without uh, without right intel at that how would you look at that i look at it bo uh when i see when i see the security cover that i want to see with ample available feed immediately right there and a ton of security cover and anytime i can see a face a face of a mountain that's steep that goes up with all that cover i can almost guarantee you the bucks are on that face because of the wind and thermals they got all the feed they need right there close I'm hunting tight, tight, tight to bedding areas. Now, tight in the mountains is a couple hundred yards. Yeah. That's real close. Nothing for a buck to walk 200 yards, 150 yards. You start getting much closer than that out here, and it's, it's, in my opinion, much easier to spook a mountain buck than a buck that's used to people. A buck that's hunted by predators is easy to spook because he'll bump even on the odd noise thinking it might be a might be a bear, it might be a lion, it might be a wolf too. All that to say, yeah, I I have to see everything in place for a buck to have very survivable, good bedding. Well, I'm shooting a new bow this year and I am pumped. After playing around with the buddies Hoyt RX8, the smile on my face made the decision for me. The first thing I noticed with the new Hoyts were their extremely smooth draw cycles and the ability to adjust the back wall to make it rock solid like I prefer. I outfitted my own RX-8 with the inline accessories that made installation extremely easy and balanced out the bow. My favorite accessory so far is a simple one. It's the Go Sticks 2.0 adjustable legs to make your bow like a tripod, but it doesn't interfere with any part of the bow or the limbs or anything like that in addition the integrated kickstand within the hbx exact cams protect your string from excess wear when you put your cam into the dirt ground hunting or spot and stock just got easier if you want to experience what i'm talking about head to your nearest hoyt dealer and take a test drive yourself you can learn more at hoyt.com the mobile hunters expo is a consumer-based hunting show unlike any other It provides an interactive learning experience where you can try all things mobile hunting and learn from the best in the business. Come experience an unbiased, community-based environment where you can improve your hunting skills and find the right equipment for your needs. I'll be speaking at the Nor'easter Show in Mannheim, Pennsylvania at Spooky Nook Sports from August 9th to 11th, 2024. So come check it out or either of the other shows in uh, Michigan and Georgia. You can purchase tickets online at the mobilehuntersexpo.com or grab tickets at the door. I'll see you there. Before I even want to dive into it, I hunt very close to beds for mountain bucks. Getting me. I'm always near the beds. That way I'm in the game, Bo, in the early season. I'm still in the game all during the rut because I got those does hitting those community scrapes. And then the late season, I'm always in the game too, because I'm close to beds. So that's the game I play and I move on them when I need to. And I'll, I'll build a mock and throw it right in their face. If I need to, if they move on me, I'll find their bedding zone and I'll move in on it, use the mock scrape 
or an existing if there's already one there, but I'll usually build a mock and I'll throw that scent at them and pull them and usually pick up all the does in the area too when I move on them. Um, I don't know if that answered your question perfectly, but yes, I'm, I have to see everything I need, including being close to bedding and good feed and water. And, and slope is huge too. We don't talk enough about slope. A lot of whitetails have to have certain slope and be up on a slope high enough to get what they need for wind to survive. What, what kind of slope are you, uh, is there like a, do you have a, like a specific degree or something that you're looking for or a range, um, in slope where you think it's, you know, ideal for bedding? Yeah, I, I have found that my whitetails in the mountains, uh, degree wise, let's just say real steep, <laughs> real steep. Yeah. <laughs> let's just say, Bo, when I come up, when I get up on ridges that have benches that lead to a big steep face that's just covered in extremely thick security cover and a lot of feed, there almost always be a big whitetail bedded on it. So I like this. And here, this is why that steepness gives them the high ground. It gives them the daily thermal. It gives them the downhill thermal at daylight to ascend to. It gives them everything they need to get up high, lay down for the day and use the prevailing winds and the thermals to either roll over their back and give them scent to their backside or the thermal in their face. And I usually find that those big bucks, and I've watched them in, in heavy clear cuts when I'm on top of them in tree stands, say a hundred or say a quarter mile away, I've glass bucks doing this. They'll come on a ridge and just go over the edge of it and they'll lay down and face the thermal. And then the prevailing wind a lot of time will kick over the back of their head or at a 45. So they're getting both. They're getting everything they want, even at their backside where they position their body. I see that a lot. And a lot of times too, on those steep, steep faces or those steep hillside, mountainsides bow, there's a lot of blowdowns. So it's like toothpicks of trees everywhere that they work their way down through and they'll lay down in the thick and something that tries to walk up on them or get to them predator wise is going to have a hard time without making a bunch of noise too. Yeah, so that, a lot of steep stuff. I'm, I'm positioned close to a lot of steep, uh, faces and slopes. Yes. So you're, but you're typically setting up on kind of like a little bit of a flatter bench or something that's yeah. surrounded by that steep stuff. And yeah. And, you know, and a lot, a lot of the ways you just explained that is very similar to the, you know, the mountain whitetails that we have in the East, as far as the bedding, where they go just down over that ridge and either find a big tree or blow down or whatever, to be able to have that prevailing wind coming over their back, having those yeah. thermals coming up. It's just a bulletproof setup yeah. to, to be able to get into. Yep. Yeah. And there's a reason why, I mean, obviously if you were, if you and I were trying to evade apex predators daily those animals are in tune with what's going on in the wind and, and i don't know how thick it is out there where you're at bo but my whitetails in a lot of places cannot see past 50 yards where they i mean where they bed down they might not see past 15 yards because it's so thick now when all the leaves come off and we get to november then it opens up a little more because all of our brush you know we lose all the leaves all, and all of our you know all of our brush is that three feet to 10 foot high range mm -hmm. and then the big timber all around it just look it's like a carpet in the forest and then big big timber heavy coniferous forest canopy above it 
Do you find those those bucks shifting bedding at all once those leaves come off, or is it still because it's still thick that it doesn't matter? How how do you look at that? I, I do, Bo. Um, as soon as all the leaves come off and the hunting pressure's been applied for about two months, late October is when we lose most of our leaves out here. What I find, and I almost always have to move on bucks for the middle of November into the late season past the rut December hunts, I'm always moving the majority of time higher before the heavy snows get here. Uh, I, I see them move higher, steeper, thicker, and they'll hide out in the Norths if they have to until the snow gets deep enough that it'll push them out in January. But by that time, the season's over. Yeah. So I usually end up hunting the highest bow. Uh, two scenarios, real early when it's hot as hell, and they want to be cool, I'll be at my highest elevations with bucks that are totally nomadic by themselves, 100% hermits. And then real late, Bo, when all the pressure of all the hunting seasons have pushed bucks into what I call their hideouts late season. In between, I'm moving around with them as they as they transition and position themselves for the big scraping checks and phase, the actual seeking and then the breeding phase. So I'm really bouncing around trying to stay ahead of specific bucks at different zones of where they need to be for that time of the year. And the feed moves them too. The native feed transitions in and out. So I got to yeah. bounce with that. Too. It, I'm sure a- like the grass is like, obviously the grass is probably burn up and dry out and whatever. Yep. And they're not green anymore as the season goes on, which changes it a little bit. Yep. You know, the, the woody brows will probably stay the same for the most yep. part. And that's probably you know later in the season. That's probably a really good thing because that's, what's going to be left as far as not having some of the huckleberry bushes and things like right. that. If, uh, if I'm thinking about that, right now, you're right on your spot on the, the woody brows, like the cyanosis and the uh, ocean spray and all that. They just hammer that stuff. I would say mid mid October, it's still pretty green. That's another thing, Bo. you think of the West, everything burns up. Well, I live in this pocket that is very green because of the rain, the, the precipitation that we get. So we actually hang on to a lot of green, I would say, until the middle of November. Okay. And then it, then it really turns off. I'd say middle of November, and then it goes to all brows. Brows uh, feeding. Yeah. And then I play that game of cyanosis patches. Red stem cyanosis. Look it up. That's where we find our sheds. Why do we find our sheds in it? Because that's what they're feeding on in that late season. And it's all brows. And it's one of the, it's elk and deer and moose, all three species, one of their favorite food sources when it starts to get cold and the leaves are off. Ah, that makes, that makes a lot of sense. And so, uh, and, and I guess I wasn't thinking about, again, my experience with Idaho has not been even near where you're at. So like, right. as I'm looking at, you know, that's a little more drier climate and things brown up earlier, you know, obviously in some of the green stuff browning up at the end of September as it was leading in October and some of those areas that didn't have as much water as where you're at. But obviously with, with basically kind of being the Pacific Northwest, you know, you're probably getting more rain and, and having some more water in those mountains. Yeah. It's, it's dang like a, I swear to God, it feels like a rainforest up here sometimes. <laughs> yeah. I, I can't, I can't, I can't usually hunt one week 
without getting rained on ever. Like there's never a full week of, okay, early season maybe. Once I get to October, middle, even late September, you're going to get rained on once or twice a week. You know, we had a drought last year, probably the worst drought we've had in, in years. So that was different. That was really different, different hunting. Everything was, you know, they didn't even want us in the mountains hardly because they're afraid of forest fires. Uh, we're kind of back to a real wet, normal pattern this year. I think the early archery season is going to be incredible because of the, uh, the, the rain that we've had and the feed that's out there is just unbelievable this year. So I'm pretty excited for opening day and trying to kill a big velvet again. It's been a while since I've killed a velvet and I want to kill one this year. Oh, that'd be sweet. And I want to dive a little bit more into talking about the bedding there and, you know, talking about them being that thick cover where they can't see very far. And I think, I think that's one thing that, you know, when we're talking about Eastern whitetails that can go back and forth, it really depends on the habitat. For, For me personally, I think these bucks like to have, they like to have that visual, but when, when I say visual and anybody talks about visual, it doesn't mean like they can see 200 yards, you know, it sometimes it can be 30 yards that they're being able to see out in front of them, but it gets them just enough to be able to, to have that security with that stuff to their back. And, but there are, there are areas that are more that don't have logging and just more big timber type stuff that they'll use basically more thermals and visual advantage than anything, which is a little bit different than where, where you're at, but it really depends on, on that area. And you, you had mentioned about, um, the logging cuts there. Do you, do you focus on those as much as we do out here in the East? I focus on the old ones, Bo, that have been, that have been planted and have regrown. I really like those 40, 50 year old regrowths. What's, what's the reason for that? it, It is, um, 40, 50 years ago, even 30 years ago, the, the way the planting was done, um, they've changed it a lot since then because of timber species and genetics of timber nowadays, it grows faster. But in the old days, they planted stuff very close together. So it just turns into those older clear cuts are my favorite because they turn into an impenetrable bedding area. Mm-hmm. You try to walk in and hunt them. You're, you're, you're wasting your time. You're blowing deer out. Uh, I hunt in the big timber right on the edges of those. And they're so grown up, Bo, that most people don't even notice what they're looking at. I like to get right on that inside edge at the right elevations with the right top topography up against those older cuts that serve as unbelievable bedding for the best deer. And that's where I find a lot of my big bucks bedding is they'll go into one of those 40, 50-year-old cuts that's just loaded with regrowth you know, trees about that big around, I don't know, 25, 35 feet tall now, 40 feet tall. And it's just a gnarly, thick mess. But they can bump out into the big timber, cruise the ridges, check the scrapes, feed all over real close to it. And I'll I'll move in, set up on those edges of those old cuts, because I know that a lot of my best bucks will bed in those. And it's mm. almost always... Bo, it's usually almost always on a steep mountain face where they've long, where they've had to yard. You know what yarding is when it comes to logging, where they use the big towers. Yeah, 
and where they pull all the logs because it's so steep you can't use a dozer to skid it. Mm-hmm. Those old cuts, those old steep mountain face cuts that have all that regrowth in it and been replanted are incredible bedding. Yeah, because you're you're getting you're getting best of both worlds there. Like you were talking about earlier with the slope, and then you're having that cover mixed in with it, and it's just like the 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 best case scenario for it. And 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 I like you know what, what you're saying there is you with with be, you being just off it. Like you're in a huntable location because you can't probably hunt them, you know, that close to that bedding, and you probably don't know exactly where they're bedding in it. Like, it's not like it's, you know, I, I don't know. Do you find like singular beds much or are they mostly just like an area that, that you're like, they're betting in this area? I do, Bo. I do go into those suckers. I'll go into them. When I say they're in, when they're really hard to penetrate, what I mean is when we have all the green up. Yeah. There's so much brush in them for feet. It's unbelievable. But in the, in the spring, April, May. March, if I can get to them based on the snow levels, I usually can't. I will walk those and find last year's depressions of beds in those. And what I find with them at my mountain bucks is my mountain bucks, like say a big hermit old, like I had a huge buck that I was hunting a couple years ago and he was living in one of those and I was very close to him. And when I went in the year after I first found where he was bedding and was trying to kill him that year, and never did get a shot at him. Um, when I went in there in the spring after knowing where he was and having him on camera at my stand and trying to kill him, there was multiple years of bedding and rubs in the in that thing. And I could only walk it in April. By May and June, it was so greened up and so thick. It's just walking through this, you know, like walking through a jungle. So I got in there and I walked it and I've done that quite a bit in the springtime. I walk those thick areas every now and then I'll pick up a shed. If they shed early, usually they're too high in elevation. So my bucks are gone before they shed out of those. But no, to answer your question, what I find is beds all over in it. And it's a big area. It might be a hundred acre, 200 acre cut. Yeah. What I find is the bucks go up in there and bed where they want to for the day usually based on the best wind or thermal and they don't always lay in the same bed. No, I don't believe that with mountain bucks. Um, they have to kind of bed around in a zone to protect them the best. You know, they're kind of a sitting target if they bed in one bed all the time to predators. Yeah. 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 Especially yeah, where you're at there. And I, I just, I found that so much with areas that have cuts like that too. I don't, I don't really focus on like, finding a specific bed and thinking that that deer is there all the time. I found it in areas that are like old growth, timber, Appalachian mountain country, where there's some really defined ridge systems. You might find some more consistent bedding and some really wore down beds there. But like where I'm finding in areas with a bunch of the logging cuts, it's like, I basically look at that cut as like, this is a, a bedding area for it and I'm going to work around it and figure out where I can kill on it and not worry so much about the exact location where I think he's bedding, you know, cause I feel like you can really chase your tail doing that sometimes. Yeah. And I always try to set up to where I love that he's bedding up in there. I don't care if he beds 50 yards that way, 60 yards up, 80 yards up. The, I mean, I know he's over in that cut somewhere. I just yep. make sure that where I'm set up, I can pull him from any of those directions without the wind working at him. Meaning from where I'm setting versus my scrape will have the thermal working towards him. 
I'll be set up in some type of wind edge or wind tunnel that protects me from all of my scent working at him. That that's what I strive for. And it's not easy. That's no. not easy. fine. Usually what I end up doing is referring back to what you said earlier. A lot of times I'm walking up a creek bottom, deep ravine, popping up onto the edge of a bench, literally setting on the edge of the bench and having everything out beyond me. And I've got a thermal draft down that creek bottom because there's a creek there and there's cool water. And I got a thermal draft that sucks right back down. Those are the, those for me are prime setups in the mountains. When I can come in laterally, usually come in from the East always, I'd say 90% of my tree stands are set up in some Eastern fashion or where I'm going to hang and hunt, I'll always set up east of where I think I'm going to kill. Almost always. Now, do I have setups or do I move and hang and hunt when there is an east wind? Absolutely. There's places I have two tree stands set up so that when I do get that odd east wind, I can still hunt that deer. And I'll only do that bow on a tremendous buck that that I'm honing in on and want to kill. Mm-hmm. Well, I go to those extensive double sets and things like that. Another thing I'm playing with now is tree stand set in the most conducive, best place to try to kill over one of my scrapes. But I'm also incorporating ground blinds now in the worst wind advantage spot because I can conceal my scent. And when I get like an east wind one day, I'll go jump in that ground blind, if that makes sense. Ah, yeah, that that, that does make sense. And do you, do you um, leave that ground blind there? Like you yeah, set it up ahead of time. And and to be fair to your listeners, I'm not hunting deer. I'm hunting a deer. So yeah. yes, if I'm hunting a specific buck, I'll leave it on him, brush it in. I'm really starting to play with that a lot more because you can really knock your scent down in a blind. And my favorite times to hunt out of a blind are on the shittiest, nastiest, rainy, snowy days when the scent's getting knocked down good anyway, the wind isn't, the wind is not great for the tree stand setup or where I would hang a stand. That ground blind on a specific buck is pretty wicked option to have. And obviously I'll put it in early on a specific buck because he's, because he is monitoring and addressing my community scrape a lot. That's when I'll move one in and set it up. And that's been a lot of fun. I've been tinkering with that the last couple of years, just having that option. Or on a terrible weather day where, where you don't want to sit in a tree in 30 mile an hour winds or 20 mile an hour winds and get rained on all day. Yeah. But a buck will still roll in because I'm close to their beds. So a buck will still roll in and possibly check that scrape, especially like on a on a day where it's pouring the rain and then the rain stops. Yeah. I get bucks rolling in midday to check the scrape when everybody's out of the woods, when the rain's going to stop or the snow stops. That's when I get a lot of activity in the mountains when that when those fronts move on. Or pre-front. I like pre-fronts too. Pre-fronts, I get a ton of activity. Middle of, you know, in the during the rut time of the year, Bo, I don't care what it's doing outside weather-wise. Especially middle of the day dur- during the rut. Worst weather, I don't care how bad the weather is, middle of the day during the rut. I'll sit all day on purpose because my oldest, most careful bucks will sense that nobody's in the woods then and they'll move more. You know, when you brought up about the ground blinds, I had a guy on the podcast, John Gabriel, he's from Washington 
and he hunts yep. mountain bucks and he uses ground blinds a lot and talks about yeah. that. I know John and he's good. He does yeah. a good job and he's a ground blind. Yeah. It, it'll, John probably talked about it, but our weather sucks out here a lot of times. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's a bit. It can be a bitch to hunt in it in a tree stand. Yeah. yeah. And John, John's good. John kills a lot of nice bucks. And and the thing is, like, too, it's like, okay, it doesn't matter how good of rain gear you have and everything else. It still just sucks getting beat on in that all day sitting in that tree, you know, when it's like when you start getting those bad weather fronts. But you don't want to not be in the woods at that point. You know, you might not shoot something in that, you know, terrible rain or wind. But like you said, as soon as it stops, your your traps that you have built there, they want to come in, freshen that up. Yeah, they want to check, and especially during anything close to the rut. And another thing we deal with out here, Bo, I don't know if you run into it in Pennsylvania. You probably do late season. We get wet, wet fog that just rolls in on top of you, and then it freezes on you. So my entire fanatic gear will be frozen. And when I move, it makes noise because I'm iced over. My My bow will completely ice over. You jump in a ground blind on those kind of days, you don't ice up. You don't have to deal with that ice on you. That's you a, that's a that's a good point, and we we don't have that as often as I'm sure that you do. Um, I've had those times, and that's why I actually went away from uh, using like um, a QAD rest that gets locked up because I've had them where they freeze up once it gets wet, and then it gets frozen there. Like I went to like a limb driven rest. It sucks because it doesn't hold it in that position there, and it kind of just laying on your rest. So I have to put a bunch of felt down. But at the same time, it doesn't have that opportunity to freeze up and get caught in that up position. And that's, that's something to really think about. And your arrow getting all that shit on it. And it's, it's, uh, that's something to definitely think about. Well, that buck I was hunting this year that I just totally focused on, uh, I had like two or three days like that where I had to break the ice off of my shoulders, off of my clothes, tried to do it quietly, and then get the ice off my bow to, be ready for a shot. Huh. That's, that's, that's crazy. And so I, I do want to, um, I, I do want to die. Well, actually I want to ask one more thing about the, the betting thing before, before we move on, but when, all right. So you're talking about being around those buck betting areas as you get closer to like the, the rut, are your scrapes changing and your hunting spots to be focused more around does? Or are you still hunting that, that buck, that area where you think the bucks are living at? That's a great question. Uh, Early season ball, a lot of times I'm building a mock early, a lot of times, near a bedding zone to pull a specific buck to me to kill him. As soon as he starts moving, some of my bucks move three to five miles to a whole different drainage, and they'll camp out for a month of November, early, late October, all the way through November, they'll camp out on specific doe groups. So yeah, guess what I'm guess what I'm hunting in? Those doe group community scrapes that already have a couple resident bucks. But I'm also picking up the bucks that move that I'm trying to kill into those areas. And those bucks basically come in for a month or so and they'll service a different drainage. So yeah, I am 100% hunting more doe congregated community type scrapes with a couple local uh, nice bucks on it usually. But because I hunt specific deer, I move with whatever the deer wants to move to and hunt those doe family groups during the rut. 
Then late season, I got to know where he moves back to when he's kind of done with the ladies. And then I'll move back in on him and, and hunt those traps, those scrapes that are basically in the face of his bedding. If are that you, makes sense. Yeah, no, it does. Do you, do you, uh, are you doing, figuring out like where he's moving from cameras? Like, do you kind of like predict ahead of time and set up these scrapes, you know, say in the summertime or early on you put them yeah. out and then, so like you can go and you're like, all right, he stopped hitting this scrape. I need to move and start checking those other ones and see where right. he's relocated to. Is that what you're doing? Yeah. I'm laying out this big web and he'll always hit my scrapes if I'm close to his bedding. But as soon as he changes his bedding for usually breeding reasons or feed reasons, then I got to make sure I have a scrape there for him that he likes. And he'll always check that. And then he'll move maybe again on me for late season. I mean, it's a, it's a lot of work yeah. just to keep up with them. But when you lay out a big web, this big net, then a lot of times I'll catch him. Um, and Bo, my nets are big. Sometimes they're, five to eight to 10 mile layouts. And it's awesome. The information that you pick up on, like some of my bucks in 24 hours will put a 10 mile day on easy during the rut. Yeah. But I, but what I'm focused on Bo, even during the rut is where they're camping out and trying to bed up for the evenings. That's my chance to kill them even during the rut when it comes to a specific deer. Now, if I'm just hunting deer, I'd hunt it a little different, but I'm trying to chase specific whitetails down and kill them where they're bouncing around to due to feed conditions, the rut coming up, the rut going, the rut ending, and then their hideouts. So it's kind of a four to five phase move around with them a lot of times. Some of my bucks are more homebodies. Some some of the bucks I've killed in the past, they like where they live. They have all the ladies they want. They have everything they want right there, and they don't move a lot. So we start talking about the personality of a buck or his demeanor, you know, and what he's willing to do to, to do his thing. So a lot of it has to do with the individual buck, too. Yeah, and and I've seen that, too, here. Like, well, I'll have bucks that, you know, I'm trying to find one right now that I struggle with finding early season, but I know where he's at during the rut and late season. So I'm like, okay, I need to expand my web, basically, and start yeah. running some cameras in different areas to figure them out because I don't get them during the summer. I don't get them in early October, and I don't get them until, like, around October 25th or so he shows up, and then he's there, and then he adjusts just slightly – into the late season, but he hangs out there all late season and, you know, right. even in, in the January, but I'm like, okay, this is like my goal this year is figuring out what is he doing early that I'm not doing and try to, you know, hone in on that. And that's, I was just starting at this past weekend. I was out, you know, starting to spread some more cameras. I got the cameras in the areas I know he's in at certain times. And now I'm starting to start to break away and start webbing out on some of these different ridges and, and areas that might be more conducive to him living when it's warmer out and more foliage on the trees. Yeah. I'm, it's funny you bring that up. I'm doing the exact same thing with a big five by five. I have never been able to get him pinpointed in September and I want to kill this deer. I mean, he and I have went rounds now for a couple of years I want to kill this deer in the velvet. That's my goal. And I've never been on him early. He always moves in on me uh, late October, all through November and into December. I have him, but I don't, 
I don't know him in September and August. And that's what I'm working on on him right now is a big web covering a ton of ground to try to locate him right now. I want to locate him now and I want I want to kill him opening day. That's the goal. But I don't I don't have him dialed in yet. And it, and I've been after this deer for a couple of years. I mean, he has been very nomadic. He probably moves more and hits more of my community scrapes. And I'm not kidding you, Bo, in three different drainages. Does, three is- different drainages that are stacked together, big drainage, big drainage, big drainage. I've had that sucker in all three during the run. <laughs> is this the buck that you were hunting last year that you had the opportunity at? This is, this is, yes. Yeah. No, 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 no. This is a buck that no, okay. I did not do that. The other one I shot at last year, a big five point. Oh my gosh. He, he was one bow. The one that I had the opportunity at and missed last year is a buck that my son and I have both. I swear to God, this buck has nine lives. <laughs> I should have killed him last year. Tyson should have killed him the year before. Really? And, yeah. And this is a buck that for us, Bo is uh pretty dear to our heart. We got sheds off of him. He He's also a buck that's huntable, and instead of being four hours away, he's only an hour and a half away. So he's one of those bucks, and for the for the listeners, he's one of those bucks that I can get to and hunt a little more often. I don't have a lot of time to hunt with my son playing college football. That's just the truth. I'm not yeah. missing. I'm not missing Tyson's ball games. So yeah. I basically cut my hunting time for whitetails down last year by two thirds. Yeah. So and you are a yeah. school teacher. So like you're, you're working all week. Like, you know, right now that's why you're out, you have more time to be out in the woods, but yeah. like that's in, in those type of travel times, like we talked about that before, but like for anybody that's listening, Troy's not just like, you know, able to go out in his backyard and climb up the mountain and go to hunt, <laughs> like covering no. some serious country that yeah. r- right now, right now fuel costs, Troy, I don't, I don't, uh, I don't envy you for that. Like that. Well, it, it's true. I, I literally have to make more money. I, I told my wife, I said, and I do a lot of things outside of teaching too, as far as, you know, I have a really cool bulldozer job that I do. I've always had that. I grew up logging with my dad. So teaching's my winter warm weather or keep me inside job in the Northwest. And then everything I do outside in the summers, I'm busy in the summers too. But yeah, yeah. I at least I get to set my own schedule in the summers. Mm-hmm. You know, I'll work four twelves, and then I'll take three days off to do whitetail, and then work four twelves and take three days off to do whitetail in the summer. So yes, I do have a lot more time. You know, summer scouting for me is huge. Why? Because I had to learn to be good at summer scouting and have great setups with the bugs, the ticks, the hot weather. I just had to do it because that's when I was afforded the time to figure it out. So for me, summer scouting, some people hate it. I absolutely love it, but it's because I've been doing it for 28 years of teaching. So 30 total years I've summer scouted when I was, even in college, I was summer scouting. So probably 35 years total. Uh, That's become a huge part of my game. And then to factor in the amount of time I have to hunt now, I got to be good 
and I got to be on that deer and I got to get him killed. You know, I got to get him killed in my game or I run out of time. There's only so many days I can take off. And when you're traveling, following your son, play college football on the weekends, I'm not hunting the weekends hardly anymore. Yeah, that's, that's really difficult. And I know you've done it too, where you get out of, you get out of school from teaching and you'll go out and hunt an evening. Probably more er, earlier in the season where you're able to, where the daylight's a little bit longer, but still like traveling even an hour and a half somewhere, like that's, that's a, that's a whole ordeal there. (laughs) Yeah. I'd maximize my time bow. I hunt the early archery season. I can hunt every day. I just only get evening hunts. And then, then obviously I have some days that I can take off, but I strategically take full days off in that late November, early December timeframe for my all dayers. Uh, and then I hunt like crazy before daylight savings time kicks in every evening. But mornings for me are usually a day I have to take off. Yep. Yeah. And again, especially with, you know, Saturdays being football days now and everything yeah. like that's, uh, that's definitely limited your time. And I respect that that's what you're doing is being able to, you know, you wanting to go obviously watch your son and, yeah. and he seems to be crushing it. So that's awesome and be able to, to do that. So that's, that's really cool that you, you do that and you prioritize that. Oh, it's unbelievable. It's so much fun. And, and my oldest boy, he's out pre-fishing right now to qualify for the state Idaho state bass team. So we chase his stuff too. You know, he's trying to make, get to the bass masters one day and qualifies this. Then he goes to regionals. And if he wins at regionals, he gets a shot. So we follow all of his stuff too. Um, but all that to say, I still make time and find time to hunt whitetails. Might watch a football game in Bozeman, Montana, Ty plays at Montana state. And then I'm in a tree stand Sunday morning after driving six hours back from Bozeman, and I might be four hours away from my house after driving six, driving four more to hunt a buck up by the Canadian border. That's kind yeah. of my life. And then I, <laughs> you know, then I'll, or I'll drive up Saturday night late. There's a lot of times I drive into the woods at 10 o'clock at night, sleep in my truck in a tree stand at daylight the next morning. I, I sleep in my truck a lot on Friday, Saturday nights just to get close that way I'm not driving into the drainage of that morning. Yeah, <laughs> that's, yeah. And that's, I, I'm glad you, you broke that down. Cause I want people to understand that. Like it's, it, it how bad do you want it? Right. <laughs> how bad do you want this? And, uh, that's a the perfect example of that. We used to say back in my old high school and college football days, we used to have a saying that said, you gotta want it. If you don't, if you don't want it, you're never going to put forth the effort to get it, mm-hmm. you know? And another thing too, is all this summer scouting sets, sets me up to be in a location that when I go in there, I a hundred percent know I will not hunt a spot unless I have a hundred percent chance of killing that deer in the daylight there. I don't care what time of the year it is. So I eliminate anything that's not killable. And if it's not daylight frequency on a buck that I'm trying to kill, I'm not going to go just sit in a stand to set a stand. So this scouting right now is huge for me during the summer, getting ready for that August 30th opener, which really isn't that far away. I'm no, going to be in a month and a half. Yeah. Or that's... Two, and a half, two and a half months, sorry. 
no, two and two and a quarter months. I'm hunting a whitetail. Two and a quarter months. Yeah, that's insane. That's it is coming yeah. that 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 fast. Thank you for listening to part one with Troy Pottinger. You can follow along with Troy on Instagram at mtn underscore man thirty three, and also his YouTube channel. Just search Troy Pottinger. You'll be able to find him there. Part two will come out later this week. So again, thanks for listening. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of East Meets West Hunt with your host, Bo Martonic. For more great content and to stay up to date, visit eastmeetswesthunt.com, Facebook at East Meets West Outdoors, and Instagram at East Meets West Hunt. If you enjoyed today's episode, please review and subscribe, and we'll catch you next time.